0: Good morning. Good morning. How's everybody doing? All right. Good to see you, George. All right. This morning's scripture reading is going to be from Romans three, and we're going to start with nine and go through uh, through twenty-six. So, if everybody wants to turn there, what then are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jew and Greek that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understand. There is none who seek after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongue they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be may become guilty before God therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight for by the law his by the law is the knowledge of sin god's righteousness through faith but now the righteousness of god apart from the law is revealed to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for this day. We thank you for all that you do in our lives we thank you for your loving kindness we thank you especially for this wonderful word that it teaches us how we should be how we can be your children father father we love you praise you and thank you and it's in jesus christ's name i pray amen would
1: you pray with me father we thank you that we have an opportunity just to draw near to you through the reading of your word and through the expounding upon the scriptures, I pray that you would guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, that we filter everything that we say and that we see, uh, that we do through your word. And we thank you that it is truth to us and that we can fasten ourselves to it, that it contains your promises that are always sure, that will always hold firm. It is a firm foundation underneath us, God, and help us just to look to it, to trust in it, and Father, to um, find the things that are beneficial to us. It is all for our benefit, but also for our necessarily alignment with you, Lord, that it convict us and that it correct us where necessary, and let our hearts be open to the receiving of it this morning. Thank you for all that you've done for us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and his resurrection from the grave. And we thank you for this opportunity to gather around your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Turn with me to the book of Mark. The second chapter, we'll be starting this one this morning. Mark chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> We have a, a fairly lengthy passage than what we're normally used to covering, so I'll be reading through verses through verse 12. So if you're there with me, we'll start in verse one, and I'll read through verse 12 of Mark chapter two. And when he returned to Capernaums after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So let's go back to verse 1. As we normally do, we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So we're going to take this verse by verse this morning. And when he had returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. We are back now in Capernaum, and I say we are back now because back in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28, we have Jesus arriving on the scene and he is in the synagogue. He is preaching the word of God with authority. He casts the demon out of the demon possessed man, and then he goes into other towns and he preaches the word there, and now he has returned back to Capernaum after some days. There's no definition for what some days means here. It could be a few days, it could be several weeks, it could be several months. Um, That's not necessarily for us to just debate over, but it has been a little bit of time between when Jesus was last in Capernaum and now when he has returned back. So he says that Jesus is back at his home. So most commentators say that Capernaum was home base for Jesus. And that the home of Peter was shared with Jesus. So we could call it Jesus' home as well. That was where Jesus went after he preached in the synagogue and he cast the demon out of the man. the first time he was in Capernaum, they went to Peter and Andrew's home. And it was there that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law of her high fever, her disease. So that's where we were first in Peter's home. And now most believe that we are back at the home of Peter. Uh, The report had gone out now that Jesus was back, and so were the crowds. The first time, because people heard of the miracles, it says the whole city gathered there, and that was Mark using a hyperbole just to say that these crowds were huge in number. You couldn't really even count the people. It was almost like the whole city was there, and here we see this is pretty much the same thing again. The crowds were back. And in verse 2, it says, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. So the crowds are just getting greater and greater such that Jesus will no longer really be able to enter in to the cities because the crowds, in a sense, are crowding Jesus out. This was one of the reasons that Jesus told the leper that he healed in our passage last week not to go out and share with everyone this healing, but to go to the priests first. But one of the reasons not to go out and tell everyone of this healing is that would then hinder Jesus from being able to go into the cities and do what He had already said He was going to do, is to go into these towns and to preach the Word of God. So it was likely the, the reason the command was given to the leper was so that Jesus would not be crowded out of the cities, but we see that that has really become the case, and we see it here because the scene in this room are people that are packed in so tightly that it's shoulder to shoulder, and you're not going to get anybody else in there. And in fact, this is probably giving my wife Jody anxiety just thinking about it because she's claustrophobic. And those of you who may be a little claustrophobic would not want to be in this room. The crowd was so packed in just to get to see Jesus, to get to hear Him. And I think more importantly, they were focused on getting to see some miracles. And we find evidence of that in Scripture, that they were really attracted to the miracles of Jesus But notice Jesus is doing what He said He was on mission to do. And I alluded to this earlier. And back in verse 38 of chapter 1, this is what He tells us is the main mission and His main focus. Verse 38, He said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Jesus clearly lays it out there. I want to preach. I want to preach the word of God to them, his very word being that he was God. And when he did preach the word, people were astonished, astonished. And the first time that he spoke in Capernaum, the people there said that he spoke like no other, that he spoke with an unparalleled authority, because generally the scribes were the ones teaching in the synagogue. And they compared Jesus to the scribes and said, he teaches with authority It's as if to say, and we can infer there, that the scribes were not teaching with authority. And now entering towns is difficult because the word was out. And now Jesus had to retreat to the desolate places. That is not necessarily the case here because he's back in Caesarea. He had tried to probably quietly enter in because he was already in the city and then the report went out. It wasn't that they had, news had reached them that Jesus was coming in and that He wanted to make that known, but He had entered into the city and now the people were coming to Him. But last week where we left off is, going, is kind of describing to us that when Jesus was now going to preach, He would have to enter into the desolate places because such were the crowds that He could not enter in. In verse 45 of chapter 1, but he went out and began to talk freely about it. This is describing the leper sharing the news and doing exactly what he was told not to do, but rather he was going out freely about it, spreading the news so that Jesus could no longer open a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from everywhere. So now really from this point forward, Jesus is going to be going out into the desolate places and people would be still be flocking to him, but he had to be Away from them, so that he would have an area where they could. The expanse of the crowds was so great, not everyone could get there and hear the word. Looks at verse 3 and 4 now, with me of Mark chapter 2. And they came bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So these men showed great concern for their friend, this man who was a paralytic, such that their desperation is seen with the efforts that they take in getting their friend before Jesus because there was hope. Already Jesus had performed many miracles and word was out, when he was first in Capernaum, he was healing the sick. He had healed Peter's mother-in-law. He was casting out demons. And so there was hope that the same would happen for their paralytic friend, that he would be healed of this disease that kept him on a bed such that he himself could not get to Jesus, that he had to be carried. And here again, I think I've mentioned this the past couple of times when we've spoken of a miracle, when someone was afflicted with a disease, this was viewed by the religious Jews as having something to do with this man's sin, something that he did or something that his parents did that caused him to be afflicted in such a way. Now, his affliction was not seen as severe as the man last week who had the leprosy, because one who was a leper, they couldn't even touch him. They had to remain six feet away. And if the wind was blowing, they had to be 150 feet away. They saw them as just the, um, the ones that, that could not approach anybody, that had to be castaways in the city. Um, but still, this man would have been seen in much the same way as having some form of sin that caused this paralysis in his body. And, you know, Jesus' disciples... We're no different in this belief. In fact, if you go to John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, we see how rooted uh, many of the Jews were in their belief that sin had caused this malady, if you will. John chapter 9, verse 1 As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And then Jesus would immediately answer them with with a rebuke here. He's saying in verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. It's not because of his sin. And we will still, I think unknowingly, even as believers, might carry around this kind of belief. I would call it a karmaic kind of thinking in viewing someone's life and thinking that they had to have done something that might have caused that. You know, karma is a teaching found in Buddhism and Hinduism. It is a false teaching, but it is a cause and effect kind of belief that kind of mirrors this form of thinking that we're seeing here, that one has this ailment in their life because of their sin. And we might even find ourselves thinking, well, karma is going to catch up with them. Or it's, it's karma that has brought this about in their lives, that he deserves what he got because he sinned. But karma is not Christian, and it is based in false religion. And so I think as believers, we need to remove that From our vocabulary. We might not believe in it, but a lot of times we might just say that, oh, well, that's karma. Well, that's false religion. And in a sense, we're promoting that. So that's just a little side note. Let's come back to these, these men who are demonstrating this form of desperation and also their faith in Jesus as healer by going above and beyond to overcome the crowd situation that they're facing to get to Jesus. They wanted their friend, their paralytic friend, to get as close to Jesus so that he could see them, and they had seen that oftentimes Jesus' touch was what healed them. So if they could just get this man in front of Jesus, if he could just touch him, that he would be healed. So what they did is they got up on top of the roof. It was usually a single-story house, and there was a roof that had beams that ran across the The uh, length of it, and then on that were slats, and then they might have laid some thatching down and put some mud on top of that, and then on top of the mud, they may have even put tiles, and I think it's Matthew's account of this that says they even pulled through the tiles. So that's basically the way that the roofs were constructed, and a lot of it depended on how much money the person had, and uh, so they had to go through great effort. We know that just to remove all of this, and not just remove a portion, but remove enough so that they could lower a full-grown man down on a stretcher before Jesus. And you can imagine how interruptive this must have been, Jesus trying to preach the word to them, and all of a sudden you have all of this noise going on above you, wondering what it is, and I'm sure everybody is having pieces of sticks and mud falling in on them, so all the attention is directed to them. And Jesus didn't see it as a distraction He didn't complain about the stuff falling in over on the top of his head and and the crowd, but he saw their faith. And it is a demonstration of not just their care and their concern for their friend, but it was also in their trust that Jesus could heal him. Verse 5, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus saw their faith. And Jesus saw far beyond the physical determination that they exhibited by breaking through the roof. Jesus saw into their hearts. It was a faith that ran deeper and only God could see where it stemmed from. These were hearts that were moved by sincerity and trust in the one who could save. And I believe what we're seeing here is a genuine repentant faith. And I think that is indicated here mainly because of what Jesus says and is quoted as saying, son, your sins are forgiven. But look back at the last part of verse two. The last part of verse two, what was Jesus doing while he was in this house? It says he was preaching the word to them. So in the context, maybe there is is a response in faith to the things that Jesus is saying in his preaching the word to them. Because faith consists of belief in the message that Jesus proclaims, but is also demonstrating faith in the messenger himself, which is Jesus Christ. And I think that's what we see here in this exhibition of their faith. Faith consists of belief in the message, but also in the messenger. In Romans ten seventeen, what does it tell us? But that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. They were hearing it right from his mouth. Christ was preaching the word to them. And so this response of faith, I think, went beyond their just knowing that Jesus could heal this man. But they had heard part of his message or much of his message already, and there was that response of faith also to to be forgiven, to have their sins removed from them. Salvation comes to a sinner through faith. And everybody who is saved must believe and repent of their sin. But it is not the power of that faith that saves them. It is the power of Christ that saves them. It is the power of the Savior and the Savior alone. Faith is only the instrument, not the power itself. Because we know, Ephesians 2.8, by grace you have been saved through faith. The grace of Christ to show mercy upon the believer, to save them and rescue them from their sin and justify them before God by His, by His substitutionary atonement, but it is through faith. So faith being the instrument here. And the value of one's faith does not come from the one who expresses it, but from the object in which it rests. What is the object of their faith? In Mark chapter 10, Jesus had healed a blind man here, and in verse 52, he says to the blind man there, go your way, your faith has made you well, and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So he's to go on his way, but yet he turns back to the Savior. You could see his faith, the object of his faith was in the Savior who had healed him. I believe what we are seeing there is, is an evidence of a saving faith in this man. When Jesus spoke of the faith of the woman who had the physical issue of blood, and I think that's in Matthew chapter nine. We also find it here in Mark that we'll cover in verse five, chapter five. But the healing there was likely also more than just the physical healing that occurred. Because we are told in Mark's account that Jesus, after she is healed, He says, go now and be in peace. To be at peace with God is to be restored into a right relationship with God. And I believe that the type of, of peace that Jesus is talking about here is the peace that Christ brings us with God. That through His faith in what, at that point, He would do for them, but now for us it is realized in what He has done for us. When he was on the cross and he said, it is finished, tetelestai is accomplished, it has now been fulfilled, and salvation is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. So many take that to mean that um, this man, this paralytic was forgiven because of what Jesus says, forgiving his sins, and in other instances Jesus would say to certain people, See, your faith has made you well. He was saying that their confidence in Him had been the means of their restoration, and we see it in a physical sense, certainly. But here also, we can definitely see a a spiritual connotation to it as well. The faith of these men helping their friend is realized in their taking action. They trust in Jesus' healing power enough so that they go through great means to get Him in front of Jesus, And that is how genuine faith is expressed. There are two types of faith that are described in the Scriptures. James articulates it well for us, that there is a dead faith. There is a faith or a belief that God exists, that even the demons have. But then there is the saving faith, a faith that is sincere and genuine. has put its trust in Christ and in Christ alone. And it is faith that is seen in the outworking of the Holy Spirit within the life of a believer. In fact, if you want to go with me to James, I believe it's in chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Beginning in verse 14, James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So we never say that the works save us. It is by grace we have been saved through faith. But a faith that is not dead will be seen, will be evidenced by works, by ministries that that are performed. And these men are certainly ministering to their friend. But now let's just um, shift now our focus to this very radical statement that Jesus makes. And thus far, we have not seen Jesus make this statement in the gospel of Mark. And that is that, son, your sins are forgiven. So he sees their faith. And then he says to this paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And we can be certain that this aroused a response from the crowd, particularly those who are of the religious order. We know scribes, we know Pharisees are in the audience here. Some of them have maybe come from around the area just to see uh, this man who is going out and healing and speaking with authority. And there are probably the scribes and the Pharisees that were in Capernaum the last time in the synagogue when Jesus spoke with authority, and the audience or the people hearing the word compared Jesus' authority with that of the scribes and the scribes that were normally teaching. And it was an insult that they would say he's teaching with authority, inferring that they're not. So there's probably a lot of jealous rage going on internally within them as. Jesus is saying that. So they've got these things that are going on in their minds, and we see how they respond to it. Verse 6, Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So they're not vocalizing anything. But there's almost like an internal monologue that, you know what that's like, I, I talk to myself a lot, but there's this internalizing that is going on, questioning in their hearts, and they're not questioning in a, a soft way, they're very harsh in their thinking and their judgments of what Jesus is doing, and all Jesus said was, son, your sins are forgiven. You see, Jesus wasn't already, already wasn't fitting the construct of who they thought the Messiah was should be. In fact, I think we alluded to a passage last week, or we referenced a passage last week that they said they wanted to make Him king. And when they learned that Jesus wasn't here to assume an earthly throne and to overthrow Rome and to free them and to liberate them and to um, then rule on an earthly throne, that they just didn't want to have anything to do with Him. That was their construct for Him. But one thing they knew and rightfully new is that only God had the authority to forgive the sins of human beings. And now Jesus says, "Your sins are forgiven." And so immediately their minds are going to accusations of blasphemy. Why does this man speak like that? Men this is in their head. And then also in their head, "He is blaspheming. <laughs> Who can forgive but God alone? He must be acting as though he has the authority of God himself. How could he? So this is a very clear implication to Jesus' claim of deity, his saying this. Now maybe not in our culture today, someone to say that, they just may pass it off and, and not really think much of it, but this is very serious what Jesus is saying here. Jesus knows what is coming now because of his forgiving of this man of his sins. Jesus also, though, perceiving in his spirit, because remember, this is going on in their thoughts, but now Jesus knows their thoughts, and even that itself proves deity, because only an omniscient one can know another person's thoughts, and here Jesus is now perceiving their thoughts, knowing what they're thinking, and in verse 8, immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. what do we think is easier? Which question is easier to ask? And this is a form of debate in antiquity where you would answer questions with questions. And so Jesus is turning it around on them now, knowing what they're thinking. And here, these things are actually being spoken aloud. And maybe the crowds are a little confused because they hadn't heard the thoughts of the scribes and Pharisees, but Jesus is addressing those thoughts that they're having. He's saying, why do you question these things in your heart? Well, we have to give these questions that Jesus asks careful consideration while also keeping in mind who it is that is asking these questions. This is the God-man Jesus that is asking them to answer him this. Which is, which is harder? Which is the more difficult question to ask here? Because on one hand it would seem that the easier of the two is to say your sins are forgiven. Like in our culture today, as I mentioned already, that would be an an easier thing to say. I mean, maybe not in the body of Christ here, but outside in the context of the culture, that would be an easier thing to say. But also keeping in mind now Jesus is in and among fellow Jewish believers those who hold to to the Torah and hold to the, the Word of God and knowing God is the only one that can forgive sins. So be keeping that in mind as he's asking, which is harder, to say that your sins are forgiven? Because no one can test that, right? Especially immediately after Jesus had said it. This man has not had an opportunity to go out and live a consecrated life in Christ and then to demonstrate if it's real salvation and real repentance through a life that bears fruit. So, there's no evidentiary um, thing that is demonstrated here when Jesus says your sins are forgiven. So, they have no way to prove that if He did really forgive him of the sins or not, how does one test the truth of what Jesus pronounces here? But then if He says, rise and walk, there is evidentiary proof in that. If He gets up and walks, then yeah, there was authority. This man has power within Him, and we On this side of the cross, no, yes, because, of course, He's God. He has this power to to heal this man, but what if He doesn't walk? What if they have to carry Him back out on the stretcher? Well, there's, there's immediate evidence that the things that He's saying isn't real, that it didn't take place. So, at first glance, it would seem that the easier option is to say, your sins are forgiven, because this one doesn't demand an immediate outward proof. But Jesus didn't imply that it was easier. Jesus doesn't respond and say, this is the easier question. In that culture and context, and in the presence of His enemies here, it would be far easier to say, get up and walk. And this is the reason why. Because Jesus, by saying what He said, He's laying down the gauntlet here. Because He is saying that He is divine. He is claiming to be God. And that's not an easy thing to claim and the reason why is what is the punishment for one who is accused of blaspheme against God? Because this would be a clear case of blaspheme if he wasn't the Son of God. And there are like, three different ways to blaspheme according to Jewish religion and according to the law that if you said something that was evil about the law or the Word of God, that was one form of blaspheme, and that would be like a a, a third degree, <laughs> if you wanted to rank it, and then there would be saying something evil about God himself, and that was like the third degree or second degree of blasphemy, but then guilty in the first degree would be someone who claimed to be God and wasn't God, and that, the punishment deserving of that form of blasphemy was death, and this would eventually be the false accusations that they would use to have the Romans crucify Jesus, but he was God and he could make this claim and he could forgive sins and he could heal and he could restore. But this was a serious charge and Jesus knows what this invokes. He knows what the response will be. But Jesus tells us in verse 10 why he chose the words that he chose. Verse 10, but that you may know, that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. So in verse 10 this is why he said it. This is why he asked the questions and why he said your son, your sins are forgiven. It wasn't just to heal, but it was to go to the deeper need of this man who had paralysis. <clears throat> we might think that his most critical need was to be healed of his physical affliction when his most critical need was to be healed inwardly. And only God the Savior can do that. Jesus Christ, His Son. And I know we apply a lot of prayer, or a lot of time in prayer for our friends who and loved ones, and people that ask us to pray for those who have physical afflictions. that they, Maybe it's a cancer diagnosis. Maybe it's a heart condition, or maybe they're just sick, and we want to pray for their healing. But how much do we pray for the true need of everyone is for them to be saved? And I think it's always important that we ask when we agree to pray for someone. It's like, do they know Jesus? What is their salvation? and to pray, and to focus that prayer on that first, and then pray. Pray that God would heal them, but to be focused on the deepest need, and that's to relieve the guilt on our conscience that our sin causes, and that the only way to be free of that is to put your faith in the Savior who forgives sin. Now, this is not to say that the man's suffering was directly related to his sin. That would be you know, drifting off into that karma kind of thinking that he deserved what he got. But it's also not to say that the, the struggles and the sufferings that we go through on this earth is a result of sin. The first sin entered in through Adam and Eve, death and decay and suffering, is now sort of the condition of our fall. And we're going to experience things like this, but not to say that our suffering is equal to our sin. There's a deeper personal problem that needs to be addressed. And Jesus wants them to understand that He is the power and He is the authority that forgives sins, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He answers it very plainly there. Now, there's a couple of titles that we see in the New Testament that are used to describe Jesus. Actually, there's many titles, um, but where he has said the son of something, he's either the son of God or he's the son of man. And those two titles are, are used often to describe Jesus. But the title of son of man, I looked this up last night in the New Testament, Jesus uses it 83 times or it's used of Jesus 83 times. Now, the number one is not son of man. Number one is Christ. So one of his titles is Christ. The second in line is Lord And then the third is Son of Man. Now, 83 times, that sounds like a lot you would expect. Well, maybe that should be first. But what it is, number one, is Jesus' self-designation of Himself. When Jesus uses a title for Himself, the most popular one that He will use is that He is the Son of Man. And that's significant because who is the Son of Man? And in one sense, we can see that this is describing his humility and that he did become fully human, though he was still fully God. He didn't leave any of his deity behind. And so he humbled himself, becoming like us and being tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So in in one sense, son of man describes that humility, but also it carries a lot more weight than that. If you look at Daniel chapter 7, Look at verses 13 and 14, and I encourage you later just to take a deeper dive into the entire chapter 7 of Daniel, or just the entire book for that matter. But Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And son of man is the title that Jesus often refers to himself as, the son of man, and here in Daniel, it, the sense here is not that he is the man come in, in humility and the, the suffering servant type of son of man being described here, but rather he's a heavenly being. The son of man is appointed by the ancient of days to be the judge of the earth. The ancient of days gives him the kingdom forever. The ancient of days descends from heaven and he, is sin, he sins into heaven as well. When Jesus calls himself the son of man, he is not just describing his humanity there, but I think even more, especially in the context of this, is saying that he is not from this earth, that he is divine, that he is God, and that he could rightfully say, your sins are forgiven, that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And who gave him that authority? The ancient of days. This is the Son of Man. And then to authenticate this self-proclamation, the self-designation of himself being the Son of Man, Jesus then follows it with the miracle. So he does both. Jesus can forgive sins, and yeah, now I'm going to prove that too by authenticating that with this miracle. In verse 11, he says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So purposefully, Jesus waited to heal the paralyzed man until after he declared his authority to forgive sins. So this miracle would prove whether or not Jesus had the power over sin and its effects. I've said this before, that Jesus didn't perform miracles just to perform miracles, that there was also a message that we are to see in the performing of that miracle, but also that miracle would authenticate that he was the Son of God. And this miracle authenticates that the claim that he made to forgive sins was seen also in his power over the human body. And this man was immediately healed. It wasn't just like, okay, well, that, that feels a little bit better and they still have to carry him out. Yeah, that's psychosomatic response that we see a lot of false doctrines promote today. But no, this is immediate. It's full restoration. He's able to get up, carry it out on his own. He doesn't need these men anymore to carry him out. The Savior had healed him. But the greatest thing that happened to the paralytic that day, I believe, was not the healing of his body, but it was the forgiveness of his sins. It was a, a heart change. And he rose, immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. So we see the response of the crowd compared to that of the scribes and Pharisees. In their minds, and I don't know if it's been verbalized yet, but it will be that they're, they're saying, He's blaspheming. This, this isn't God. He doesn't fit within our construct of who the Messiah would be, But unlike the callous scribes and Pharisees who continued to reject Christ and to always be arguing and debating with Him and trying to pick out flaws and errors in what He did, though they couldn't, they ended up having to go to false accusations to get them to finally stick. Unlike them, the crowd showed great amazement. They were just blown away by the things that Jesus said. Many of them did respond in faith. But I think we do see that it was a superficial faith. And we can see that in um, Matthew chapter 9, 7 through 8. This is the parallel of our, our passage here in Mark of the healing of the paralytic. In verse 7 of Matthew 9, and he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. They glorified God who had given such authority to men who had given such authority to men. So they attributed the miracle. They were astonished. They were amazed. They gave glory to God, but they attributed it to a mere man and not to Jesus as God himself. They were in awe. They were glorifying God, but they still saw Jesus as just a man whom God had granted authority to perform this miracle. They witnessed his supernatural works, but they refused to believe in his divinity. As John explained, Later in 12, verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. In our reading of the scriptures, both old and new, it is made clear to us that only God can forgive sin. I believe that's where we can align with the the Jewish authorities here. Yes, it is only God who forgives sins. And it is equally clear, though, to us that Jesus is God and possesses all the right And all the authority to forgive sins. It was given to him by the Ancient of Days. And at the heart of the Christian message is that the Son of God became man. And that he died for sinners like you and me. So that God's justice was satisfied when the payment was fully paid by Jesus Christ. And his shed blood on the cross. So that sinful men and women might be reconciled to God might be restored to God and made at peace with God. And the sacrifice of Christ is the sole means by which God offers forgiveness to the world. And the Apostle Paul said it this way, and I'm going to close with these two passages of Scripture. Paul speaking in Acts, Luke wrote Acts, but he's quoting Paul here in Acts 13, verses 38 through 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man... Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And then Paul himself writes in Ephesians 1, verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you just for these amazing displays of the miracle to heal people, of their physical afflictions, but the more profound one of the miracle of salvation in that you forgive sin and that Jesus forgave sin and we can trust in him and his redeeming work that was perfected once and for all on the cross to bring us, to restore us to a right relationship with you. That all of us in our sin are under your wrath. There is no way for us to be justified in our own works before you, but it took the perfect one to take our sins to the cross, to become sin for us so that we might become in him the righteousness of God, that you might see Christ on us and not ourselves when we appear before you, Lord. And that he overcame the grave and he gave us a victory over death, over the spiritual death, that we need not fear, but that we will be in your presence when we're absent from this body. We just thank you for that hope of heaven. We thank you for the promise of restoration for those who put their faith in Christ and repent of their sin. I pray that that has been realized for all of us here, God, but I also know that I'm preaching to some that may not know you. And maybe today through the message that you have just landed on their heart in a certain way that they are convicted of their sin, that they're grieved by it, that you have just caused them to and compelled them to confess it before you and to put their faith in the one and only one that can save, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, and the Son of Man. God, we come to you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.